I am crucified with Christ, and nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Father, thank you for this incredible truth. We've been blessed this morning as we've reflected on you, as we have sung of your transforming grace in our life, as we have confessed uh, to one another that you are our all, and we depend on you for everything. And so we thank you, God, and ask that now you would, by your Spirit, instruct us through your word and encourage our hearts for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. may be seated. So glad that you're with us this morning. Uh, Thank you for those of you who are over in the overflow uh, for helping us out just a little bit. And as you're getting settled, I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of Daniel. We're back in Daniel chapter 9. So um, we'll be in Daniel chapter 9 probably for a couple more weeks. But we're at the end of this particular chapter. When I uh, started reading the Bible after I became a Christian, i got to tell you, it wasn't really what I thought it would be. At first, to me, the Bible seemed like just a collection of random stories. However, what I didn't know then is that the Bible is actually one great story. It's the story of God. It is the story of God's plan to restore a relationship with mankind that was broken because of sin. There's a wonderful historical flow to this story. It begins with God's creation. It records man's fall. It chronicles God's plan to redeem. And it ends with a final consummation. And within this very broad general framework, the Bible displays God's grand design to glorify himself by sending his son to redeem his people and to rule in a perfect kingdom. So in a nutshell, here's the story. Following man's sin, God promised that he would send a redeemer who would crush the head of the serpent. God made then a covenant with a man named Abraham to make from him a great people and to give them a land that's chosen for them. Through these people, God promised that he would bless the nations. As they grew into a great nation, God set them apart. And he promised that if they followed him with all their heart, they would be blessed. God's people committed themselves to follow and to love and to worship God only. However, they didn't. They rejected him and they pursued other gods. They wanted to be like the nations around them and have a king. And God promised an eternal Messiah king who would redeem and who would rule forever. But God's people continued to rebel against him and so he sent prophets to call them to repentance and to warn them of the consequences of their disobedience but God's people persisted in their rebellion and as a result they were carried away into captivity outside the land of promise 
But nearly 500 years later, God sent his son, Jesus, into this world. He presented himself to his people as the Messiah King. But Israel rejected Jesus and had him crucified on a Roman cross. Because of this, Israel was temporarily set aside. And God then began to call out a people for his name from every tribe and language and people and nation. And while the church was being built, God never forgot or abandoned Israel. He has a future for them that includes fulfilling all the covenant promises that he made with them in the past. The Bible tells us that one day Jesus will return and every Jew who will be alive at that time will finally trust in him as their Messiah Jesus will set up his kingdom, which will include a redeemed people that's comprised of both Israel and the church. That is the basic storyline of the Bible. Now, when the particular parts of Scripture were written, about 30% of it was actually prophetic at the time. And while many of those prophecies have been fulfilled... Much is still anticipating fulfillment in the future. For instance, of the 330 specific prophecies that deal with Christ's coming, actually two-thirds of those prophecies deal with his second coming, not his first. Now, the study of prophecy is called eschatology. It's kind of a big word. It simply means the study of of last or final things. Eschatology is a significant doctrine in Scripture and it has a prominent place. So we should care about prophecy or eschatology because God cares about it. As we sort of are getting our way into the passage this morning, let me just give you seven practical benefits of understanding eschatology. And I'll just kind of warn you, we're going to only be looking at 11 words in verse 24 today. We're going to continue later. Uh, First, eschatology displays God's sovereignty. It displays God's sovereignty. It shows that God reigns as supreme over all things. It demonstrates that He is sovereign over what has already happened as well as over what will happen. And we've seen this, haven't we, in the book of Daniel. As Daniel begins, Nebuchadnezzar and everyone else thinks that the God of Israel has been defeated. You see, Jerusalem and its temple have been destroyed and God's people are in captivity in Babylon. However, throughout the book, we're able to see that God is actually over human history. God reveals in Daniel what is going to happen hundreds and even thousands of years before it happens. For example, in chapter 2, God gave the king of Babylon a dream that revealed what will happen in the latter days. The dream identified the world powers that would follow Babylon, and it revealed that a coming kingdom of God would one day smash all the kingdoms of men. And then in chapter 7, God gave Daniel a dream that revealed that after the earthly kingdoms are all destroyed, the kingdom of the Son of Man will come and it will never pass away. 
Listen, only a God who controls history can actually disclose where that history is headed. So eschatology, one blessing, is that it displays God's sovereignty. There's a second blessing. It reminds us that God is good. It reminds us that God is good. The Apostle Paul understood this. He was able to evaluate all the hardships of his life in light of what God said about the future. And so Paul was able to say in Romans 8, verse 18, For I am... I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. See, Paul knew about the glory that's to be revealed to us because of what God had revealed about that glory in the past. So eschatology reminds us that God is a good God and he has a good future for his people. There's a third blessing. Eschatology gives us confidence in Scripture. It actually gives us confidence in Scripture. You see, prophecy that has already been fulfilled guarantees that prophecy which hasn't been fulfilled will one day be fulfilled. And we've seen this in the book of Daniel, haven't we? God said that following the kingdom of Babylon, there would be three other kingdoms, Medo-Persia, then Greece, and then Rome. And history has proven this to be absolutely accurate. And God revealed that just before the Messiah returns, there will be a revived phase of the Roman kingdom that's ruled by a powerful leader who will oppose God and oppose God's people. And we can be sure that this will happen because everything else has already been fulfilled just as God has said. There's a fourth blessing. Eschatology motivates us to holy living. Now, Scripture tells us repeatedly that the Lord Jesus Christ will return. It is this promise of His future coming that motivates us to live in such a way that we will be ready when He comes. Now, Paul wrote in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Notice this. Waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous of good works. We wait for the blessed hope. What's the blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Scripture tells us that the blessed hope of Christ's coming motivates us to live for him now because when he comes... We will be like him then. 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3 say this. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, 
we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And then notice this. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Now, Scripture tells us that 1,000 years after Christ sets up his kingdom on earth, God will recreate a new heaven and earth where we will live with him for the rest of eternity. 2 Peter 3, 11-13 says this, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So eschatology, the study of what is to come, motivates us to holy living. There's a fifth benefit. Eschatology provides us with hope and encouragement now. It provides us with hope and encouragement. It tells us that this life is not all there is. It fills us with hope about what will happen after we die. And it assures us that we will forever be with the Lord. It's not up there, but in, G in John 14, verses 2 and 3, Jesus says that in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And then Jesus said this, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is encouragement. We know what happens. Now the believers at uh, Thessalonica were discouraged because some in their church had died and the Lord hadn't come back yet. And they wrongly assumed that because they had died, they would miss the event when Jesus calls his church to be home with him. So Paul clarified what will happen on that day in order to give them encouragement. He said in verses 14 through 18, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Not those who are taking a nap, but those who have died. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ, those who are asleep, will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That's great encouragement. And so Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So what is the truth that we are to encourage each other with? It is the truth about what is going to happen in the future. There's a sixth practical benefit of eschatology that I want to share, and it's that eschatology promotes endurance in the midst of suffering now. See, life for the believer in this fallen world is not easy. 
Life is filled with pain. It's filled with adversity. It's filled with difficulty. It's filled with suffering. In the book of James, the faith of those who followed Jesus Christ was being tried. But the encouragement James gave them was rooted in the truth that Jesus is coming. And that His coming is imminent. That is, it could be at any moment. James 5, 7 and 8 says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And then he illustrated what this patience should look like. He said, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts. Notice why. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Finally, Eschatology offers rich blessing from God. The Apostle Paul recorded the book of Revelation while he was banished, actually, onto this little island of Patmos. And while he was there, he was given a revelation concerning Jesus Christ and what was to come. And in the prologue to this revelation, it states this, verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Now that's been 2,000 years. And if the time was near then, the time is certainly near now. At the end of Revelation, we find a similar promise of blessing. In chapter 22, verse 7, John writes, Uh, Jesus, through John, says this, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, why did I go through all that? I did because in Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27, we have a very significant prophetic passage that is eschatological. This passage from Daniel's perspective, was something that was all future. However, from where we stand in the flow of history, some of it has been fulfilled, but not all of it. Some is still future. So I want to invite you to go ahead and stand. I want to read verses 24 through 27. In fact, I want you to read these verses aloud with me. Verses uh, 24 through 27. And if they're up there, there you go. You can read, read them with me. So let's just, when we read Scripture together, we want to read it loud and we want to read it slow. All right? So let's, let's read verse 24. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. 
Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Thank you. you may be seated. I love that, by the way. <laughs> I would much rather hear you read and us read together than me read. Well, before we actually get into these verses, I want to sort of just pull back and make some initial observations about the content of this passage. First, notice that this prophecy was given as an answer to Daniel's prayer. We've seen, I think we've been in Daniel for maybe five, see this is the sixth message maybe in Daniel so far. The majority of chapter 9 is actually Daniel praying to God because of something that he learned from Jeremiah the prophet about the duration of the Babylonian captivity. And so Daniel's been confessing sin and he's been asking God to restore his people. And in response to Daniel's prayer, God sent angel or an angel Gabriel to give Daniel insight and understanding. We saw that last time, verses 20 to 23. So this prophecy is actually the specific insight and understanding that Gabriel was sent by God to give to Daniel. Second observation. This is a prophecy that focuses on Israel's future. Now, if you remember, the other prophecies in the book of Daniel focused on the Gentile kingdoms. However, the primary focus here is about the future of Israel and Jerusalem. So while you may want to find us in this prophecy, we're not. This primarily focuses on Israel. Third, this prophecy covers a total of 490 years that are divided into three sections of time. What we learn is that this prophecy decrees 70, wick, years, uh, 70 weeks, rather, which, as we will see in a moment, is actually 490 years. And these years are divided into three time periods. In the first section, there are seven weeks, or 49 years. And during this period of time, Gabriel says that Jerusalem and its fortifications will be built. Then in the second section, there are 62 weeks, or 434 years. And we're not told what occurs during this period, except for what happens at the end of this designation of time. Gabriel says that the Messiah, the anointed prince, will come. However, it also says that after he comes, that the Messiah will be cut off. That is, he'll be killed. And it's this event that actually stops the clock for Israel. In other words, what happens next in this passage is said to happen after the first 69 weeks, but it is before the final 70th week. 
And during this undisclosed period of time, Gabriel says that Jerusalem will be destroyed and Israel will experience trouble. There will be war, desolations until the end of this undisclosed period of time. So there's a notable break after the 69 weeks and before the final 70th week. Then the clock starts again and takes us to the third section of time. In the third section of time, there is one final week or seven years. During this 70th week, we are given insight to several things that happen. A ruler will make a strong covenant. And then after three and a half years, he'll break that covenant and he'll put an end to sacrifice and offering. And he will make everything desolate. He will then at the end be brought to his decreed end. There's a fourth observation I want to make before we get into this passage. And it is that this prophecy discloses details to Daniel that weren't previously revealed to him. Now, previously in Daniel, God has disclosed a lot about the future to Daniel. Most of it is about what is happening with the Gentile rulers and their kingdoms. However, in this prophecy, he discloses truth that had not been previously revealed to Daniel. Primarily two things. First, God disclosed in the prophecy when the Messiah would come. He disclosed when the Messiah would come. The prophecy says that the Messiah would come 483 years from the time that a word goes out to rebuild or build Jerusalem. And second, in this prophecy, God disclosed what will happen after the Messiah comes. It says that the Messiah will be killed. He'll be cut off. And it says that his death will accomplish six purposes or objectives. But Daniel also learns that there will be another destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Romans. So these are just some high-level observations of the passage. And we're going to, if that's confusing to you, we're going to sort of take our time working our way through it so that at the end, my goal is that you have an understanding of this prophecy. Now, as we get into the details of the prophecy, we're going to look at four things over the next few weeks. We're going to look at the setting of the prophecy, the subjects of the prophecy. We'll see some objectives in the prophecy, and we'll look at the substance of the prophecy. Now, this morning, we're going to just look at part of verse 24. I think in English, it's just 11 words. This gives us the prophecy's setting and the subject. So notice first the setting of the prophecy. Now, as chapter 9 began, we noticed this, that Daniel discovered from Jeremiah that the 70 years of captivity were nearly over. So he set himself to seek God to confess sin, and to cry out to God for mercy. Daniel asked God to restore his people to their land and to restore worship in Jerusalem in a restored temple. See, Daniel assumed that when God restored his people to their land, that the ultimate blessing of the Messiah's kingdom would come to pass shortly after that, perhaps in just a generation or two. You see, from previous revelation, Daniel knew that a final messianic kingdom 
would destroy all the kingdoms of men and would last forever. In chapter 2, Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream and said in verses 44 and 45, notice this, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will, notice this, set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdoms be left to another people. It, that is that kingdom, shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. So Daniel knows there's going to be an ultimate kingdom. That God's kingdom is going to destroy every earthly kingdom of man. And then from chapter 7, Daniel saw in his vision of the beasts how the horn of the fourth beast was destroyed. And then in verses 13 through 14, Daniel said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So Daniel knows all of this. And he learns from Jeremiah that the 70 years of captivity is nearly over. And so he assumed that when Israel is released from exile in Babylon, that God was going to fulfill what he had seen, what Daniel had seen in these visions. This is why he immediately went to work confessing Israel's sin and calling on God to extend mercy. You see, he's expecting a full and final restoration in the Messiah's kingdom. And so as a result of Daniel's prayer, God sent Gabriel to clarify this timetable and to give Daniel insight and understanding, which is why in verse 22, Daniel said, referring to Gabriel, that he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. So now in verse 24, Gabriel informs Daniel about the time frame. He says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. He says that the specific time frame is something that has been decreed by God and will encompass 70 weeks. Now the word decreed indicates that this is a specific period of time and that this time is firm because it was set by God. In other words, what God said will happen in this 70 weeks will happen within this specific time period. Now, when you and I think of 70 weeks, we tend to think of, if we do the math, 70 times 7, we think of 490 days, which is actually less than a year and a half. But this is not how Daniel thought of this. The Hebrew word for weeks is the plural noun for the word sevens. So the time frame is literally 70 sevens. And since Gabriel will be revealing events that occur in a specific time frame, 
The word 70 is, uh, or sevens is translated here as weeks. Why? Well, in Genesis 1, God established one week to be how many days? In the creation account, one week is seven days. So Daniel understood this sevens to be referring to 70 weeks. But did he understand this as 70 weeks of days? Or did he understand this as 70 weeks of years? Well, we know that this cannot refer to days, weeks of days, for a couple of reasons. First, history proves that the events which are said to occur within this time frame didn't happen in 490 days. The Messiah didn't come, he wasn't killed, and Jerusalem wasn't destroyed within that time frame. But there's another reason that Daniel understood this as 70 weeks of years rather than days. You see, in verse 2, Daniel was already thinking in terms of years. In verse 2, Daniel said, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. So we ask the question, why did the Babylonian captivity last for 70 years? Did God think that was just a, a good round number? No, it was because for 490 years, Israel had failed to keep the Sabbath year, which was to be kept every seventh year. See, Leviticus 25, verses 3 through 5 says this, For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. Now, what was the duration of this Sabbath? You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. See, God had said to Israel, listen, I'm going I'm to bless the snot out of you guys, but here's what you need to do. You are going to work for six years. But on the seventh year, you're not to work your land. You're to give your land rest. And because Israel failed to keep the Sabbath year for 490 years, they failed to allow the land to rest every seventh year. So they were in captivity for every Sabbath year that they violated. Listen to what the chronicler said in 2 Chronicles 36, 21. It says, He took into exile in Babylon, referring to God, those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia, that is, in Cyrus, that's the Medo-Persian Empire, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, notice this, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So for 490 years, Israel had failed to keep 70 Sabbath years, which is why they were in captivity. 
and why Gabriel tells Daniel that 70 weeks of years or 490 years are determined for Israel. So Daniel learns through this prophecy that Israel's return from captivity would not be the event that would bring in the final messianic kingdom. God's going to stretch out history for his people by 70 weeks or 490 years. In essence, here's what God was saying through Gabriel. Daniel, I know that you think the final eternal kingdom, when the full covenant blessings for your people will be realized, that this is going to be very soon, but I want you to understand that a period of 70 weeks of years is decreed before that will happen. That's the setting of the prophecy. And next time we're going to have to look at the subject of the prophecy, which is for Israel. It's actually very, very specific. Um, and we'll start looking at the actual prophecy itself. But before we close, I want to consider several implications about Bible prophecy. The first is this. Maybe even after this morning you're like, man, I can't understand Bible prophecy. Yes, you can. Don't be afraid of Bible prophecy. Don't be afraid of it. Understanding prophecy encourages us with the truth that God is actually taking history to a definite designation. Prophecy is intended to encourage you and to bless you and to strengthen your faith. It gives us confidence to face the future and it encourages us with what we need for what we face now. Listen, when it comes to the study of prophecy, people generally tend to fall into two broad categories. For some, prophecy is an obsession. They look at everything in the world as it, result, as it relates to end-time issues. The only books they read are about prophecy. They scour the internet to find everything that they can about current events to see how they fit into the end-time picture. Now, if you fall into this category, just be sure that you allow Scripture to inform your understanding of current events rather than allowing current events to form your understanding of Scripture. And unfortunately, what happens is too many people try to fit their preconceived system or understanding into or impose it on Scripture and try to make Scripture say what it never was intended to say. Others are not obsessed with prophecy. They're just ambivalent about the subject. They see prophecy as confusing, or for some, they see it as a distraction from what is important now. And if you fall into this category, let me just encourage you to not be standoffish toward prophecy, but to understand prophecy, but to understand it and, and, and to grasp it through the rest of Scripture. Don't jerk out prophetic sections and have them stand alone. They fit within the story. They're part of the grand narrative, and they should be understood within the framework of <clears throat> Scripture. Second implication, submit your assumptions about the future to what God reveals about the future. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say at a funeral something like, well, 
Aunt Jane's up there looking down on us right now. She's watching over us. Or, you know, God gave us another angel when he took Uncle Lee. Really? <laughs> really? Where do we get those ideas? The Bible says nothing about being aware of what's happening on earth when we're in heaven. It says nothing about us being angels after we die. There is specific revelation in Scripture about what happens to us after we die and what we will be doing in heaven. And what we won't be doing is looking down at what's happening here. Can you imagine if that were to happen? How discouraging it would be? Man, we'd be our heart, we'd be torn up all the time. Man, look at my wife. What is she doing? <laughs> so widows, as you go to bed tonight, you can be confident. He's not watching you. <laughs> he doesn't care. Even when it comes to this passage of Scripture in Daniel, there's a lot of people who approach the passage with previously drawn conclusions. They try to force a theological construct of the future onto Scripture. And we need to allow Scripture to speak for itself and to shape our theological understanding of the future. See, Daniel assumed that since Babylon had fallen, as this was given, he was now in that second kingdom, the Medo-Persian kingdom, that he thought that it wouldn't be long, since they were going to be going back to Jerusalem, it wouldn't be long that Medo-Persia is going to fall, and then Greece is going to fall, and then Rome is going to come and going to fall, and then the Messianic kingdom is going to come into play, and it's going to be relatively quick, perhaps in just a generation or two. But Gabriel informed him that it would be much, much later after these, and it would be after these 490 years were finished for Israel. Third implication, and I think this is so important, God doesn't <clears throat> just care about what will happen. God cares about what's happening now. He cares about what's happening now. We know this because God has sent his son to redeem sinners and to call out a people for his name. That's what God is doing. That's what he's doing. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ this morning, if you're faithfully a true believer, here's my question. Are you following him by being obedient to his word? God cares about that. Are you seeking to glorify God in all you do? God cares about that. Are you telling other people about him? God cares about that. <clears throat> what if Christ should call you home today? Would you have any regrets? Listen, life is short. Some of you know that. You're struggling maybe with a terminal illness. You know life is short, and the opportunities that God has given you now to serve Him have a shelf life. All of us come with an expiration date. I'm telling you, make the most of your opportunities and get engaged in what God has given you to do. Jesus is worth it. Maybe you're not a believer. You're not a follower of Christ. If that's the case, listen. God cares about what's happening now, and he calls you to repent. He calls you to trust him. He calls you to follow him. Scripture reveals that there is a very real future for everyone who rejects Jesus Christ. A very real future. In hell, forever, 
unbelievers will experience the righteous judgment of God. That's forever. I can't tell you how many people that I've witnessed to that have died before trusting in Jesus. And the thought that they are experiencing the righteous justice of God in hell, His wrath, it's troubling. But there is hope in Jesus Christ. And if you're an unbeliever, here's the good news for you today. Jesus came to pay the penalty for sin that all sinners deserve. Will you cry out to God for mercy? Will you entrust your life to Him? There is a future. God's over the future. But He has made a way by calling out a people for His name to be glorified in that future through you. Trust Him. Call on Him. Know Him today. Father, thank You. Thank You for just the privilege we're going to have in the next few weeks to work through this prophecy and seek to understand it, to see Your glory put on display as Your plan for Your people is revealed. Pray for the unbelievers that are here this morning that your spirit would grip them with the reality of where they stand before a holy God. That they would experience that conviction and be compelled by the Spirit of God to repent and believe. Pray for us, those of us who know you, that we would live faithfully, make the most of the opportunities that we have until you take us home. That we would be a people who glorify you throughout our days in this life by worshiping you, by growing in you, and by telling the world about you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand as I think the worship team is going to lead us in a final song.